everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Vayikra is titled Kedushas in the Details and explores the way these laws try and elevate each of our most basic human functions, food intake, bodily functions, relationships, spaces of worship, and our use of time. Check out the Matan website for details about this year's summer program, Jack's Queens and Kings, which will run from June 25th until July 12th. We will be delving into the roles of kings, governing powers, and advisors in Jewish texts and thought. This week's episode has been sponsored in memory of Miriam Yudit Bat Basha, whose yard site was on the 17th of Nisan. She was a strong, resilient woman, a Holocaust survivor, who always prioritized family and a commitment to Torah. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshiot Tazriah Mitzorah mostly deal with the impurity resulting from tzara'at, often erroneously translated as leprosy. This was most likely a general name for skin diseases that the Torah groups into one category. Last year's conversation on this Parsha with Dr. Ilana Steinhain, episode 51, went deep into the function of tzara'at in a person's life. Check out that episode if you haven't yet had a chance to hear it to round out the conversation on these Parshiot. Today's episode focuses on the final chapter of the Parsha detailing impurities related to bodily emissions, the Zav, Zava, Nida, and seminal emissions. This conversation will also touch upon the list of prohibited sexual relationships in Vayikra chapter 18, which is in next week's Parsha Vachreimot, to try and provide a broader discussion of impurities connected to sexual organs and our sexual relationships. Today, I'm excited to welcome back friend, colleague, and returning podcast guest, Shana Goldberg, who teaches Israeli and American post-high school students and serves as Mashkicha Ruchanit in the Migdal Ozbeit Bidrash for Women. She is a Yawetzat Halacha, a contributing editor for the Drachea Women and Mitzvot.org website, and the author of the book, What Do You Really Want? Trust and Fear in Decision-Making at Life's Crossroads and in Everyday Living. You can hear more about Shana's book on episode 12 of our podcast, and we also spoke on episode 83. Parshat Chaye Sarah about relationship dynamics in the book of Breshit. I'll also add that Shana has some other phenomenal interviews up there in cyberspace, particularly her conversation on the Orthodox conundrum and issues related to teaching Sni'ut or modesty, and a newly released episode on the Singled Out podcast where she has an open and honest conversation with the host about the observance of Shmirat Nagia. Shana, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's so nice to be back here. So I've invited you on for a challenge today. We really decided to sort of put together a bunch of texts. Some of them really are in this week's Parsha, and some of them also extend to to the following Parsha. And what I really want us to do today is to explore what these texts reflect about the Torah's view of sexuality, maybe even uh, body awareness, other than some, let's say, really negative perspectives that we could hear throughout the ages, whether it's even from an academic perspective or where they speak about the fact that the Torah has like a fear of blood or or things like that, or negative views of, of women, God forbid, I think that we can sort of get to something that's much deeper than we could sort of redeem those ideas from, from their negative perspectives. And because 
because of both of our backgrounds as a Yotzer Halacha, we're, I know we're going to end up sort of honing in a little bit on, on the topic of of Nida, which is really the only impurity on the list of impurities that we'll talk about that is still relevant to our life today. So the first thing I want to open with today is a reminder about a concept we brought up last year uh, in Parshat Sav in my conversation with the Alibowitz. I might have even referenced it already in a different episode this year, which is the difference between ritual and moral impurity. I, I don't right. think we, we can't have this conversation today and putting together these two different kinds of texts without remembering this, which is that ritual impurity is a technical fact. Mm-hmm. The Torah says that certain bodily emissions renders a person impure. A woman bleeds, whether at different times of her month, a man has uh, has particular emissions from his body, it renders him impure. And its ramification is simply that he can't or she can't go to the Mikdash without purifying themselves, without perhaps counting a certain amount of days and then going to the mikvah. Uh, and and that has to happen. It's not a judgment. Nothing bad has happened. These are natural processes of the body. Some of them, the Torah sort of hints that they're more natural than others, but they each have a way to exit that situation. Mm-hmm. And that's ritual impurity. And we yeah. would put their chapters... 15. 15. And, I, and I'll just add into that that I think that a lot of times when we read in the Chumash about Tum'ah, it's exactly as you said. No one did anything wrong. They may have, in fact, even been doing a wonderful thing, a mitzvah, chesed shalemet. If you go to a funeral, if you're part of the Chavar Kedisha, if you go to a cemetery, you become tamay, the mate, but not because you did anything wrong. I think because so often in the Navi, they end up using tuma as an interchangeable word with chet. So in our minds, we often associate tuma with chet, whereas the tuma that you're speaking about now, that ritual impurity, has nothing to do. It's a it's a status. It's a state of being that exactly. happens from different events or experiences. And I think that's a great point to contrast it with the Nevi'im because the Torah has a very specific way or a specific set of vocabulary to describe a different kind of impurity. And that's what uh, scholars, but initially Radatz Hoffman, calls moral impurity. Mm-hmm. And moral impurity are behaviors that taint a person's personality and mm-hmm. their character. And so we have words like toiva, like an abomination. Mm-hmm. And that would be the list of the arayot, of the sexual relationships that are prohibited that come up in chapter 18 and also a bit in chapter 20. Right. It's not just a concrete physical tumor, but it's something that we think affects their soul. And it's also a choice, right? That's a big difference. It's a choice that they made to engage in those relationships as opposed to the ritual impurities, which no one had any choice. These are these are things that happen. These are states of, of yeah. living that happen to someone's body. And those, the big difference, there are a number of big differences between those two kinds of impurities. Oh, now I'm remembering. I brought it up with um, in my conversation uh, with, with Hannah Lakshambab because we spoke of the fact that kashrut is actually a very fascinating mixture of these two kinds of impurities. But I'm bringing it up again this week because we can't go further in this conversation without understanding it. The difference is with those kinds of moral impurities is that the Torah actually doesn't provide a real way to absolve yourself of them. Yeah. There's no real way to get rid of them. And that's tshuva. Bidiyu, right? <laughs> so we have the contract of tshuva, but within the psukim themselves, there isn't that solution. And the Torah says, again, and if you look in chapter 18, the famous passage of, if you do this too often, the land is certainly just going to spit you out. So right. it's just a matter of 
of refraining, of not getting to that scenario to begin with. And I definitely, you, you know, I've had students come to me, and I'm sure you have also, where they've engaged in something where they feel, whether or not it's from this list or, or something else, they feel tainted and they struggle with how to absolve themselves of that. And of yeah. course, the answer is always going to be tshuva. But the Torah itself in, in this location doesn't provide an out for these kinds of things, which is, again, one of the major differences between the moral impurities and the, and the ritual ones. Yes, and I think it's a very important distinction specifically for Nida because there's a big component of Nida that is very clearly connected to the halachot of Tumantara. And those are the psukim that are at the end of this week's Parsha of Mitzora. You know, both of us are Yotod Halacha. My husband always jokes every year, oh, we're at your favorite Parsha. It's not my favorite Parsha just because I know these psukim by heart. <laughs> just because I teach them every month. all the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, th- th- those are the psukim this week's Parsha, which are the psukim that tell us that a menstruant woman becomes Tmeya. The main implication of which, you know, you already mentioned is that she can't go up to the Mikdash or in today's time for someone who is living in Medina Yishel, that means they can't go up to Harabait. Even a single woman who wants to go up to Harabait, who has at some point had her period, would have to keep the laws of Nida and go to the Mikvah before she engages in that. But then separate and apart from the Tuma and Tara, which we encounter in this week's Parsha, there is an Isor that applies to uh, a woman who's in Nida, which is that you can have an intimate sexual relationship when you're in that state. And that we only encounter in next week's Parsha of Mot. And the reason that Nida is relevant to us today, or the reason that from people, religious people the world over know about Shabbat, Kashrut, and Nida, is not really because of the Tuma part. Because the Tuma part, again, unless you're going up to Har Habayit, is not really relevant today. We're all Tameh. We've all, you know, we're all Tameh Lameh. We've all been to hospitals and cemeteries and, and funerals, if we had only read the psukim in this coming week's parsha Mitzura, then you could stop me and you could say to me, okay, this is really interesting. There's a woman who's a nida, there's a woman who's a zava, but why does a kala need to come and learn these halachot before her wedding unless she's planning to go to Har Habayit? They really shouldn't matter. So I always feel like it's a little bit of a God's sense of humor that you come to Shul Parsha Mitzura, you're kind of half paying attention, like all these they don't feel so relevant to us today. And then you come back next week, and all of a sudden, we hear this new detail. It's like God is saying, oh, remember last week's Parsha? Um, that needs a woman? Just forgot to tell you one little detail. Forgot to mention to you that when a woman is tmeya as a nida, you can't approach her in an intimate sexual way. All of a sudden, you kind of sit up and chill, and you're like, what? Wait, what? This isn't just about ritual impurity. There's also an isor. So what do I need to do now to remove this isor? Oh, you need to keep the halachot that you learned in Parshat Mitzorah. You need to go to the mikvah. Now, the reason it's important for me to say it like this, and this is I find that students, adults, everyone kind of is confused, that the only Tuma in the entire Torah, the only ritual impurity in the entire Torah that also comes with this spiritual impurity, you want to call it, or this Isor, is Nida. Meaning everybody else, if I'm Tame the mate, there's no Isor to engage in a sexual relationship. If a man is a Balkari, he's had a seminal mission, of course there, that would not work for him to be a sore to engage, if forbidden to engage in a sexual relationship. But a woman who is a Nida, she does have this Isor on her. And on a Pshat level, I mean, I'm, I don't know how you feel about this, but on a Pshat level, I really think it's a hook. I really can't explain in a rational way why, as you said, this 
experience of a woman menstruating, which is not something that she brought upon herself, which is something that's just, you know, a natural part of her monthly life, why that should mean that now uh, she's a sore and why she and her husband can't engage in a relationship that otherwise is not just permitted, but we think is wonderful. So on a technical level, I really think that it's a hook we don't understand. I think that the question has been addressed in ways that are less attractive to me, like talking about the Torah, having negative feelings about women's blood and things like that. Those are not answers that appeal to me in the slightest, uh, but they're answers that are out there. I think that there is also this idea that constantly comes up about that associates Tuma and death and that somehow uh, maybe even every month, right, that a woman doesn't produce life, that this is sort of the flip side. Also, these mm-hmm. ideas don't appeal to me at all. I don't like them. I don't like what they reflect about the natural cycle of women's bodies. I don't think I have another perspective that, that deeply speaks to me, but I think that there is some sort of reflection of the life change that goes on in a woman's body every month that the Torah says needs to be recognized. So you could paint it in more positive colors or more negative colors, but I think that this has a lot more to do with the process that women go through every month of their life for Mm -hmm. a certain portion of their life, much more than it has to do with the man and the woman together. Uh, That's where I would go, I think, in my natural uh, natural inclination. But Mm -hmm. I I think that a lot of this, I agree, is I'd rather also leave it sort of as a mystery because I'm not sure that any Mm -hmm. of the ideas themselves particularly speak to me. You know, we'll get into it a little bit later, but also the nita on the list of arayot is utterly different. Uh, Maybe we'll, we'll we'll hold back for now, but there's something very different about the nature of that relationship, which is a loving marriage as opposed to other aspects of that list, which seem to be much more problematic in their essence. But I guess we'll hold off for that piece. I think that maybe with that, we'll talk a little bit about the list of the Arayot. We'll sort of move over into there. It's interesting because I really encourage anyone who doesn't remember sort of the list by heart. <laughs> they didn't make you learn that in fifth grade by heart. Stop, I'm joking. Uh, that parrot you skip in fifth grade. Exactly, it's a parrot you skip. <laughs> so we have this very interesting list, okay, in, the, in again, the 18th chapter of Vayikra. And as we said, you need to look at these these pieces together. And we really have a question there about why why these relationships are prohibited. Again, a lot of these are intra-family sexual relationships, and a lot of that even closely related, further related. So there's a number of different elements that come through there. And there have been multiple explanations that have been offered throughout the ages as to why these relationships are prohibited. And we have sort of this, you know, the famous phrasing of the elvat, right? The elvat, the, that which is supposed to be covered of your sister, of your mother, right? Of all these different relationships that should not be, uh, not, should, should not be uncovered. And, and, and so I wanted to share first sort of a few explanations of what the commentators have come up with about why this list has been produced, okay? So mm-hmm. I'll first start, even though in a chronologically it's a more modern source, I'll just start with Radatz Hoffman, and then I'll, I'll take us through some others. So Radatz Hoffman says a few things. First, he says that in general, uh, we are given these 
prohibitions, whether they're, again, within family relationships or even within other nations uh, of the world, in order so that we will live a life of Kedusha. And he says, Okay, he says that a person is given these prohibitions in order to raise them up a level so that we will have our sort of our character be honed in and that we will be more moral and that we won't be pulled down what he calls the it won't be pulled down to sort of our like most base sensual aspects of ourselves. And he says, for example, uh, there are different reasons for different prohibitions on these lists. Uh, he says, like marrying two sisters, right, which we know from, of course, biblical stories wasn't really a good idea ever. Um, the, he says the main reason is the following. עצם דברי הפתיחה שמזהירים מפני התועבות של המצרים והכנענים מגלים את כוונת החוקים. He says the fact that this list opens up with the fact that we don't want to be like the הכנענים uh, and the מצרים really reflects the purpose of this list. שמטרתם להרחיק את עם ישראל מן הפריצות והבהמיות ולהעלות אותו למדרגת עם קדוש. And that we really the point is that we want to be different, want to be elevated, raised, and and I would say yes, morally superior than practices that are that are exhibited in the world. And when I read commentaries like this of of Radatz Hoffman, I. I mean, he's saying, don't look for a rational explanation why you can't marry two sisters. I Meaning, the point is that we will be different mm-hmm. than other than other nations. So it resonates somewhat, but it, for me, it also raises questions about what that really means. Is it just by virtue of the fact that we're different for other people that now this has been better? Which I'll even like give like a silly example from mm-hmm. life. Sometimes I feel like, so there was a really big social phenomenon and I didn't engage in the social phenomenon when it was popular, whether it was, you know, seeing a particular show or listening to a particular singer. And then I sort of like dabbled in it to sort of see what everyone was talking about X years later. I actually get that idea of doing something not the same as, or at least not in sync with the rest of the world, because it enables you to be sort of a little bit more critical and conscious of what you're doing because you're not caught up in some social phenomenon. So at that level, I, I get what Radatz Hoffman, and he's just echoing what many have said before him, yeah. of this idea of just doing something different. And the fact you're doing it differently makes your relationship with that with that thing, whether it's, again, it's the media or it's a relation, kind of relationship, it, your relationship is more conscious than it would be if you were doing it the same as everybody yeah. else. Touches on next week's Parsha of Kedoshim Chiyo. You know, and uh, at least Rashi have appreciated minaraya, like to separate yourself, to be different, to right. go about it in a way that is unique and distinct. And the the big difference between those ideas versus, let's say, another one or two that I'll mention now is that they don't go into the details. They don't say this relationship is problematic because of X, but it's a general idea of doing something differently, and different is already going to be better. Yeah, which, you know, I've been thinking about the riot and how many people in the early stories of the Chumash actually <laughs> violated them. As you yeah. mentioned now, Yaakov marrying two sisters, even Amram and Yocheved. Um, you know, Yocheved was Amram's aunt. Uh, we don't think about that often, but she was Levi's daughter and she was married to Levi's grandson. Um, so it's hard to kind of come and say there's something intrinsically wrong when we see great people that we admire having done it i think that what you're saying now resonates in the sense of there may not be something intrinsically wrong but it's something still that we're asked to to do to carry ourselves differently yeah and i think that that this also goes back to the initial distinction the fact that 
there wasn't necessarily something wrong, but then once we get the special mission of receiving the Torah, God says, okay, it's not wrong, but let's, let's do it differently than exactly. other people do it. So just to give a taste of two other ideas, okay, the Rambam uh, says that these laws are here, very specifically, to limit sexual activity. Mm-hmm. And he says that why are these women prohibited? Because these are women who are easily accessible. These are your family members. Mm-hmm. And so because they're easily accessible, we want to limit that that relationship. And and even Ezra says, I would say even I would say even worse, and I'll explain what I mean, I mean by even worse, he says that, well, we can't get rid of all sexual activity, so we're going to limit also those options close by. Now, both of these ideas reflect a very negative perspective on sexuality, right. which over the years, thankfully, in modern times, really modern times, has become less popular. But this was a very prevalent idea for many, many years that I will say that many others say very clearly are not reflected in the Torah. Right. Our earliest sources, our psukim, our earliest commentaries, I think, had a much more positive view. And as of Lichtenstein writes, the pendulum swung at some point to a much more ascetic view and thankfully has swung back. Yeah. Meaning the Torah and Chazal specifically do not reflect many negative views of sexuality at all. A lot of it comes much later on from other texts and then it seeps into Judaism and then thankfully as exactly it's sort of it's sort of seeped out. The Ramban says he also has a relatively negative view of sexuality, but he says the fact is is that our sexual relationship should mainly be used for procreation and these are unions, which is fascinating how he thought and how he knew this, these are unions that won't create healthy children, right? Because inbreeding and well they didn't know about genetic issues, but they obviously observed that this was a thing. I know that you uh, said now that definitely there's a negative strain in a lot of our sources about how, you know, we kind of are forced to self-discipline and sexuality is something bad that we have to restrain from. On the other hand, I think Rav Soloveitchik in uh, a wonderful book, Family Redeemed, really, I think, shows us that there's also something very positive and very powerful that comes out of that self-discipline and that he writes there that no one should think that Judaism overlooks or underestimates the physical aspects of marriage. Specifically, once people have sacrificed, they've sacrificed and they've withdrawn from a sinful erratic paradise of change and uh, variety, meaning once they have given up on that experience that we know is so prevalent in our world today in the hook of culture of multiple partners and multiple experiences and all kinds of experimenting, he says that's when you really understand what the natural element in marriage is all about. That's when the natural element in marriage comes to the fore because then you realize that the two partners owe each other not only fidelity but also full gratification of their sexual needs. Meaning on the one hand, Josepha, yes, we've restrained from so much. We've been disciplined. We haven't engaged in all kinds of experiences that other people have. On the other hand, we understand that that's why it's so important that specifically in the context of marriage, there is full gratification of the physical sexual relationship and that it is something that a couple invests in and cares about and works on and is fulfilling and meaningful in their lives. And it's actually the outgrowth of the fact that if we can't, you know, um, if if we don't have that concept that now exists in some parts of the world of an open marriage, like yeah, we have what we have, and if you're not happy, so you could explore that in other places, and that's why we understand that no, it's important for us as a couple to make sure that there is satisfaction in this area, and that's the flip side, I think, of the restraint and the self-discipline that I think marriage takes on a very central and crucial place in this dynamic. I mean, I'll just add also as someone who, who does spend time sort of in this part of the world and speaking with people about it as well, that 
the the wonderful side is that all is that ideally people put in the effort if they ever need outside help they figure that out as well to make this a positive aspect of their marriage it also it does put i think as we're saying the torah wants more pressure and saying mm-hmm. this is what you have so right. so you want to make it worth it and you want to make it good so invest we're invest in it. it exactly you know there's another fascinating perspective that i came across uh, from Hillel Zeitlin, who has a fascinating background also, as I was looking him up and I was reading about this, uh, has Hasidic background, eventually left that and became really much more influenced by the Maskilim and then sort of came back into the world of Torah. Anyway, so he, he speaks about this idea about the Arayot, and he says, it's very simple, the explanation. He says, the Psukim mm-hmm. describe exactly why each relationship is problematic. And he says, if you look at the Psukim, it sort of divides into three categories. Some of the relationships are problematic because they insult the personhood or the essence of who that person is. So for example, when it says achotchahi or imechi, it's your sister, it's your mother. If you engage in a sexual relationship with this person, then they will no longer be those things to you. You mm-hmm. you violated the natural boundary of that relationship and it's now been permanently corrupted. And so that's the reason he says, you know, it's not even about being better than the Kanani, meaning mm-hmm. you have you have violated the basic nature of, of that relationship. Meaning a, a close reading of the Psukim itself gives us so much information. It's all there. And then he says for there's another another type, which is that if you have a sexual relationship with this particular person, somebody else will be impacted negatively. Like when it says ervat avichahi, meaning if you have a relationship with person X, this person is in the domain of your father. They're in a relationship with somebody else, and therefore you've now you've now hurt mm-hmm. that other relationship. So the third is that the person themselves becomes corrupt, meaning the sinner themselves. When it says, this is someone who's not allowed to you. So this will bring us back to our initial example, but meaning this person is not allowed to you, and therefore you yourself have compromised your own humanity by engaging in a sexual relationship. So I just think that piece is, uh, is really, really interesting because he says, just read the psukim, right? The psukim themselves provide that, that explanation. Mm-hmm. But obviously, Nida is somewhat different because in all the other relationships that are described there, whether it's incest or adultery, the woman herself, meaning as a person, this connection between the man and the woman, that in of itself is what's forbidden. Whereas with a woman who's a nida, as a woman, as a person, if she's your wife, she's completely permitted to you. And again, we rejoice in that. We're, we're, we're thrilled about that relationship. And yet at certain times, because of a certain status change, she becomes forbidden. You become forbidden to each other. And I think that is why nida is different, that there's not something immoral in the relationship itself. And we see that, I think, very real consequence in the offspring of these unions, because we know that the offspring, the children, even though this is one of the most difficult theological questions of how could children be punished for the sins of their parents, but children who are the offspring of any of the Arayot relationships, any of the forbidden relationships, are considered mamzerim, and they are not um, able to marry into Klaishel in a typical fashion, whereas the child of a union of a man and a woman who engaged in a sexual act when a woman was Nida does not render that child a mamzer. 
that child halachically is referred to a ben nida, but there's actually no halachic consequence. And thank God we know that many people are the children of nida. Anyone whose parents did not keep the halachot of nida are bene nida, but that has no implication for them today. And I think that's the Torah's way of telling us that this clearly is something different. It's a sore, it's a, it's serious, it's a punishment of karet, like all the other arayot, but clearly the Torah is delineating that it's not exactly the same in terms of all the other things that you just described. <laughs> so two thoughts come up. One of them is, I believe it's a shiva from of Rav Moshe Feinstein, where he was asked about marrying the child of Bali Chuva, and mm-hmm. what if it was a child who was conceived and one was Anita? Right. And his a great moment he has in that shiva is where he says, every woman goes to the ocean at some point yeah. <laughs> at some point she she told even without He's knowing clearly trying to you yeah, know trying, calm was, the nerves exactly but it really wasn't a whole argument exactly. it was really uh just to to help calm exactly the allay the fears of the person asking but i think that just to pick up on that that piece that you brought which is that to me it's why the main sort of the main point that i take from the prohibition regarding having a sexual relationship with a woman who's a nida really surrounds the topic of time and that the point that we're trying to highlight or that we're trying to sort of mold and and elevate if i can use that you know the big word that the person you like to use is the idea of time and so to me the the nida as opposed to the other people on the list where there's something inherent in the relationship that is problematic that mm-hmm. we don't want to be there with the nida we simply have this very pure idea about how we want time to function within our sexual relationship and that we we don't want to limit it right this is everything is desired and and beloved in the eyes of the torah about this relationship but the way that we have to sort of um, guide it or to again to raise it up is to sort of frame the time in, mm-hmm. in which the relationship is engaged in so right. i really and, agree with and, that. and perhaps that echoes you know in general there's definitely parallels between our love for God and our love for a spouse. And in one of those uh, ways is that we see that there's something about our relationship with God that is anchored in order and a degree of restraint and self-discipline and not everything is okay all the time and we have to be careful and this goes back to the idea you said earlier we live a different life we live differently our life is structured differently and so too when it comes to our very physical relationships we see that there's order there's there's time awareness and consciousness and there's a discipline there that we may not exactly understand but we do understand that it ties into that that idea of not everything is going to be around our desires and what we want at this moment, but the two of us together are committed to something greater than ourselves, and that's the role that God plays in our lives. So so two thoughts in response to that. One is also just to sort of bring an idea from Rav Elchanan Samet in his Parsha books, is that he says that to him the main focus of of these laws of the arayot is mm-hmm. to protect the family structure, mm-hmm. which again, we could ask this question, how does that work with the nida? Uh, I think that what it does, by the way, is regulate the parents and the family. Mm-hmm. But this list is there to make sure that this structure is protected and that the sexual doesn't become intertwined with relationships that are not supposed to be that way. Even though if you think about it without our modern glasses or something that seems almost like it would be normative, right? If, if everything blends in, right, then, then maybe we would think 
in our own logic that these things should go together. And the Torah says, no, no, no. In order for the family structure to be protected, we need to separate these elements of ourselves physically. You need to go and engage in that kind of relationship outside of your family structure so that this person, these could be, this could be your mother, this could be your sister, this could be your brother. Mm-hmm. And and I think that for parents, so that the parents themselves are are in a, I don't know if I would say regulated or some sort of uh, a framework of Torah. And, and I think that that goes back to the point you're making about comparing our relationship uh, with God uh, to, a, to a spousal relationship. You know, we've mentioned this a little bit in our episodes in Breshit. I brought that up in the Rabbi Sachs introduction to, to Breshit, where the family becomes like the most, sort of the, the most powerful metaphors for our relationship with God end up coming from the family structure, you know, as God is our father or God is our spouse or, or Absolutely. God is mother. And so... The, this is like practice, right? This is practice for looking at these relationships as being, as being sacred, as being inviolable. That all of this is sort of our human level practice for the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have with God. I think we see that this relationship closely parallels our relationship with God, even in the words of the Chumash. Right? There are there are very powerful words that are used only describing our relationship with our spouse and our relationship with God. So for example, dvekut. We say, dvekut is like we have this glue, we have this close connection, we're so attached to God, and we know that also, it says in Breshit, that we're looking to create some kind of intimacy with a spouse that we don't have with just anybody, even, even maybe different than our parents. With our parents, we have a strong biological connection, but it doesn't describe that connection as tvikut with a spouse. And because you're going out and choosing a spouse, we know that we're looking for something different, something even more. And the same thing, I think, with the Lashon of Yediyah, that the Rambam speaks about in Mitzvah of Yediyah Hashem, really knowing God, really understanding Him, really um, doing our best to like, research Him and, and, and feel that we have a deep understanding of, of who he is. And we do that, obviously, in a lot of ways through through Talmud Torah, through Tefillah, through living in the world and experiencing nature. And we know how often the Lashon of Yediyah is used to describe the sexual relationship, starting with Adam and Chava, that, you know, Ve'adah, Adam and Chava, uh, Ishcho, that we see that that Lashon of Yediyah is so strong. And that's always been something that's really spoken to me, that sexuality is referred to as Yediyah. And specifically, I think, both in the Igarit HaKodesh, who talks about, like, why why does the Torah use this Lashon of Yediyah? Is it just a euphemism? We don't want to say what's really going on. So, uh, a man knows a woman, and, uh, puff, you know, like, uh, she conceives. What is this Lashon of Yediyah? The Torah, the Torah knows how to say things straight when it wants to. It knows how to talk about sex openly. And Rav Soloveitchik, building on this point of the Igarit HaKodesh, who says, the, the Igarit HaKodesh says the Lashon of Yediyah is this exalted language, meaning knowledge is man's highest faculty. It's not instinctual. It's not something natural. Knowledge is like, that's what separates us from the animal kingdom. Rav Salavichik, again, in Family Redeem, builds on that, and he says that the Hebrew term vayada, in its sense of knowing each other sexually, connotes the metaphysical element. 
involved in the sexual function, that the term vayadah points towards an act of cognition or recognition. The I recognizes the personal existence of the thou. So you know, Rev Salvechik speaks in high English. But what he's saying is that when a couple engages in this sexual act, it's not about, well, how does this feel for me? And what does this do for me? And is this pleasurable? It's that I have full yidiya, I have full awareness, recognition, and cognition that I am with you. And the reason that this is so meaningful to me right now and even so pleasurable on a physical level is because I am with you. If the same thing was happening to me, but it was with someone different, even the same exact physical thing, it wouldn't be the same because we don't have the relationship that I share with you. And this, I think, is such a meaningful concept to me in today's world because we live in a world where the message is, it doesn't matter who you're with. It doesn't matter if you know their name. It doesn't matter if you met them five minutes ago. It doesn't matter if you'll ever see them again. What matters is what's happening to you. And the Torah comes and says, what do you mean we call this dynamic? We call this relationship? If you don't have full awareness, cognition, recognition of who you're with, then you are missing something in the very essence of the experience. And I'll tell you that when I've spoken to this um, to, uh, this concept to groups, let's say, of college students who are not religious and who didn't grow up in, in the world that you and I grew up with, with these kinds of sources, they come over afterwards and they say, how come no one's told us this? Meaning in the world that they travel in, the only value is consent. As long as this is consensual and it's not against our will, but the idea that we're striving for something more, for connection, for yidiyah, for dvikut, for all these kinds of elevated concepts, for bringing kedushah into our lives, for self-discipline and restraint so that you could really, so that in a way that gives freedom to the actual power of the relationship that we're looking for, that's something that I think um, our world, forget about our Jewish world, is craving today. It's lost, it's lost that. You know, as you describe this process of, of really knowing somebody and seeing them fully, that we sort of is one of the most redeeming or moving aspects of a sexual relationship, I'm thinking back to the list of, of Arayot, because on one hand, one could say that there is no more of a natural context in which to be seen than in a sexual relationship within the family structure, again, whether a sibling or parent or God forbid, whatever all the examples are, that these are people who, who really know us deeply. And these are people who have seen us since we're young and that we have very few barriers with on a very theoretical level. And so we might look at those relationships and say, that's where I can have, I could be the most visible and seen. And then the Torah comes and says, this is not a relationship we want to, we want to put forward in the world. We don't want to this to be our ideal. And, and you know, and also you you've mentioned in the past, you know, the Avot and Imahot and all of their relationships with mm-hmm. their family members, there was something really very natural about those relationships. Not only were they easily accessible, you know, according to the Rambam and others, but they but there's something about them that does feel lacking in, in barriers. And then the Torah comes and, and puts up those barriers. And and I wonder if it also sort of intuits what we know psychologically, which is that one of the most redeeming experiences we have as humans and that we know men and women look for in their sexual relationships is to have somebody deeply, truly see who they are, whether mm-hmm. it's to see their desires and be able to fulfill them, or it's to be able to look at them and love them despite their imperfections. Mm-hmm. And that we know, again, research-wise, everybody is looking for. This is not specific to gender. And I feel like the Torah comes and says, I know that, right? I know that 
what will ultimately be most redeeming for you is not that this is a relationship that doesn't have any boundaries, so we'll just let it continue and also become a sexual relationship, but that I want to enable you to be able to be fully seen in the most validating way. And that will only come about if you, if you have your loving sexual relationship with somebody who is not part of your initial nuclear family structure. So interesting. I think that, you know, that absolutely resonates. And I'll add to that, that I don't think it's only about being in a relationship where you are seen and you are valued and you are appreciated, which is obviously such a deep, um, important need that we as human beings have. But it's also about being able to see somebody else and to have full cognition and recognition and awareness, as Rav Soloveitchik writes, of someone else. Meaning the Torah says, yeah, maybe you grew up in a family where you have that with your brother or you have that, you know, like within a context where it was kind of like kind of given to you, but you're charged almost with going out in the world and finding someone else where you have to develop that. You have to be able to see them as a full person and see their needs and come out of yourself and to be able to give to somebody else. I love that idea. I don't think that you and I could sit here and claim that we understand exactly why we have all these arayot and certainly nida well beyond me to really give you know uh, this is why in general the whole topic of tameha mitzvot and can we explain or can we sell halacha I'm not in that business of trying to sell halacha I'm like this is the halacha we do it because it's meaningful to live a structured disciplined life that is not only about you Um, and yet I think going back to that original idea that you brought of kind of doing something different and making us separate and bringing other values into the very physical realms of our lives is something that I think we can agree, you know, upon or that definitely resonates at least for me. Shanna, thank you so much for coming here today and speaking about this. I really think that this conversation, which, you know, we came in with a degree of humility and you've sort of captured it so well there at the end that I hope that it, it helps others organize their their thoughts and their feelings about these topics. And I also wanted to say that I know we've touched upon uh, very sensitive issues, both Hilchot Nida and laws, you know, regarding sexuality and family. So first of all, I hope that everything was sort of, you know, there's a phrase, Divrei Chachamim Benachat Nishma'im. So I hope that it was Benachat, that things were were heard and received. And I also just want to say that if anyone wants to reach out or has other ideas to share, uh, I'd love to hear them. So you could reach out to us at podcast.matan.org.il and I'd love to continue the conversation. So thanks for being here, Shana. Thank you for having me. It's always so enjoyable to talk to you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is one-on-one Women Talk Torah a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.